Today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 3, verses 17, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 19. Now Jesus, as we looked at last week, had just been stirred, stirred up into anger because we have looked at a series of five conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and it ends with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But we have the important part there, that Jesus was made angry because of their lack of pity. So, Mark's Gospel so far, which we are going through verse by verse, has had two main sections. The introduction of Jesus as the preacher of the word that gets stopped up by the fact he's also a really great healer. And the conflict Jesus had, that he wants to preach the word to people, he wants conviction, he wants people to be born again. But mostly all people hear is, hey, Jesus can heal stuff. And the crowds flock in and must go out of the cities. And we had the second section of this conflict with the Pharisees, where every time Jesus came into the city, it started a fight with somebody. So Mark is here going to move Jesus back out of the city twice. And we're going to kind of enter for two weeks what will be a little bit of divine housekeeping as Jesus sets up his family and the church. So here, these words from the Lord, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that Jesus was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so they would not swamp him. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God! But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and to send, be sent out to proclaim the message, to have the authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So, when Mark puts Jesus out into the sea, it is a repetition of that story from the very beginning of the Gospel, where Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted. It seems in Mark's Gospel that there's a thing, wherever Jesus goes out somewhere into the wilderness, it's at that point that the battle between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan becomes very real. 
And this time it is happening in front of a massive crowd. Mark's the only one who ever reports Jesus telling the disciples to get a boat so the people won't crush it. That's what the Greek here is saying. And Jesus has to, has to get on a little boat and go out from shore so that way they just can't press into him. We, we tend to talk about the story of the woman who had the issue for 12 years and wants to reach out and touch his robe. Mark seems to indicate here that that was a pretty common belief in the time period that people just wanted to get so close to Jesus to grab him and touch him that they were probably a physical danger to it. Now, Mark doesn't relate here much except that people come from the whole region to this Jesus fellow. Except for he takes a particular focus in verse 10. I'm sorry, 11. That whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted. So Mark is saying that in Jesus healing all these people, there's a confrontation going on and his demonic elements are the top of it. He kind of builds the Jesus cures everybody, but then he gets to what he's really interested in here, the exorcisms. And the Greek in the biblical idea here is a little different probably than what we are taking it normally as. When these demons are saying, you are the son of God to Jesus in this passage, they're not saying it in a nice way. It's not a confession of Jesus' deity. We're still going back to Mark chapter 1 where, who do you say Jesus is? What does it mean to be the son of God? What the demons are doing is it's a little bit of Middle, Middle Eastern magic, where if you have the name of someone, you think you get control over them. So what the demons are here trying to do with Jesus is they're saying, we know who you really are. And if we, and if we call you up for that, we somehow can control you. And that makes this much more of a confrontation than our English ears normally would have reading this. And it's important that here Jesus, when he tells them in verse 12, that he certainly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus, by his divine power, is just wiping the floor with the demons. They're trying tricks and treachery and all sorts of ways to try to ruin Jesus' divine prerogative that he doesn't want, that he's the son of God and everything, to just come out in the open. The, the demonic is trying to hinder the ministry. And Jesus in his power here says, nope, shut up. But this is important in Mark kind of setting up the whole world of the Gospel of Mark, because this is in the middle of a massive crowd. These are people that are pressing in so much because they want to see Jesus, the spiritual healer and everything, and they think what's important are the physical cures, the blessings they can get from talking to Jesus, and Jesus is still here trying to focus on the word, and the battle of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and what's really going on deep in people's souls to the point that there are demons popping up and fighting him in the middle of preaching. And by the fact that we have that Jesus silences them, that they don't say anything, we get the impression that people don't sense any of it. It's very much like the story of, oh, I'm going to kill it, it's either Elijah or Elijah. But the Old Testament prophet who's up on the hill and servant is panicking because the Assyrians or one of the Bible black guys is based all around the camp. They're based on the bottom of the mountain and they're going to kill the prophet. And the prophet's assistant is panicking. And the prophet says, Lord, open his eyes. 
And all of a sudden, the assistant's eyes are open, and there's the whole army of heaven raging around them. And then the rest of the story, when the army tries to come up the hill, they're consumed with fire. That assistant couldn't see the reality of the spiritual battle that was going on in front of them. And it's the same thing here. These people are looking at Jesus. They're hearing him preach. They're seeing him heal. But they don't get it. It's just kind of the the world that Mark is setting up for the final confrontation where Jesus is standing in front of the head priest and they ask him, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, well, you just said it. But anyways, that is the battle in the wilderness and it carries through the second section that I have never preached before because it's one of those ones I don't quite know how to get observed out of it. <laughs> and I think that's why no one really preaches it and looks at it, but because we're going through this one verse by verse, we're getting to it, okay? So Jesus has this battle in the wilderness that Mark is calling him out to. And remember, Mark has this habit of sandwiching things, of putting the stories in order. So Jesus has just had this battle with Satan, and now he moves up into the mountain. Another wilderness, but a mountain is an image of Moses. It's the image of God, the invisible, the Almighty, who is the lawgiver and commander. So, up from the sea to the mountain, Jesus, the words here are are a little ecumenical. Um, Not to step on anybody's toes today, but the best way to put this in verse 13 is, the Greeks are little cowards. Jesus here is acting as God upon the mountain, and he makes a sovereign election and choice for his disciples. Luke has that Jesus is praying at this moment. Matthew has similar verbiage, but Mark here very much is showing Jesus up on the mountain as the sovereign over his kingdom. So he has just fought and defeated those demonic forces. Now he is up on the mountain, Kind of like how God was on Mount Sinai looking down on Moses, and these disciples are going to be his new Moseses. So the first thing to point out is 12 is a symbolic number. If you've been reading the Old Testament at all, you are probably aware of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is picking on purpose 12 disciples to show that this is going to be the new kingdom, the new constitution of the people Israel. It's very proper in New Testament thinking to use what may be politically more hard in our times, but in the New Testament understanding, very much the church is Israel. The promises carry over, and Jesus is here reconstituting Israel under its king. So he's up on a mountain. How was Israel founded? Moses. The imagery is all here. And he appoints them apostles. So this is why this one's hard to preach, because Mark is here pointing beyond this gospel. And I think it's an important thing to just understand the gospel of Mark. When church history tells us that it's it's the memories of, of Peter preaching about Jesus, that Mark is writing down what the disciple taught him, there's the reality that Mark is writing this book to Christians, to a group that has heard this good news and reacted to it enough to pass it on. One of my professors said, it doesn't matter how inspired you think the Bible is unless someone gives it to you. 
here Mark is kind of breaking the fourth wall and saying, we know what happens after this story. Jesus is setting them up for what happens after this story. But in a weird way, Mark setting them up to be apostles doesn't get fulfilled to the very last verse of Mark. Anyways, just continuing on, he sends them with his most important mission in this section of Mark to proclaim the message, the word, and to have the authorities to cast out demons. So we just see in Mark that there's there's no separating the two. To proclaim, as Jesus did in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom has come, repent, is to say, the way of Satan is over, get on God's team. And there is no way for the kingdom of evil to react except in combat. You would probably be best served by me reminding you exactly what it is. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus was preaching as the good news, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. There's no way the bad guys are letting that happen. But anyways, Jesus gives them this authority. Mark has told us that they are apostles, and everybody in the church knows that they come later. But who are these fellows? Well, first we have Simon. Simon gets the nickname Peter, but here in Mark, Peter is not a proper name. And it's it's a little unclear because Peter gets called Caiaphas and, and Simon and other locations in the Bible. But Peter is kind of a nickname, and Mark is here giving it, and he's going to tell us in chapter 8 how Mark earns that name with the confession, you are the Son of God, and Jesus says, you are this rock, and I will build my church upon it. Peter is rock. He's the stalwart and the one that God will use to do that. Then we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And in the book of Acts, James, the son of thunder, which means that he gives bold pronouncements and kind of speaks his mind, and as we'll see in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, kind of shoves his foot in his mouth, asking Jesus for big favors. The guy who pops off at the mouth, James, he's the first disciple killed. And John, he's famous to us from his epistles. And as one of the first series we did here, we looked at the epistle of John. And John, not everyone thinks he's the son of thunder. Does that really fit? Because he's the God is love. My brethren, let us love one another. Oh, John's still, John's still the thunder boy. Because if you read the rest of it, John's the one where we get the words antichrist. And if they weren't of us, they never were. John is very black and white. He's got the same tendency as his brother. These are folks that could get divisive. And then we have next Andrew. He is Peter's brother. And in the Gospel of John, the one who we are told is an Israelite without God. Then there's the rest of them, and they are not mentioned anywhere except in this narrative. And it shows up in the other synoptic gospels, and we know of this list getting passed around in early churches. So there's Philip, that's an old Macedonian name. You may know it from the history of Alexander the Great. There's Bartholomew, which for us is a name, but back then wasn't. 
It's just a name for the son of Talmud. It's like a nickname. So Bartholomew is just what he goes by. There's Matthew. Now, we looked two weeks ago at the call of Levi, the tax farmer, and the spirit of that cause, when Jesus was speaking with sinners. Levi doesn't get called up in this list, but he shows up in others, and he's replaced by Matthew here. So the best scholars can figure is that Matthew equals Levi. Then there's Thomas, which means twin, but we don't have any clues to his brother. But there's an interesting fellow, James, the son of Alphaeus. Now in Mark, Levi's called the son of Alphaeus, but we don't get anything to tie these two together. But it does give us a pretty good standing guess that in these 12 disciples, there's three pairs of brothers. That just kind of changes the whole dynamic, if you think. It's one thing to be 12 friends. It's another thing to be six friends and six brothers. Jesus is building a bit of a household and a family here. The original Israel was tied together by all being Abraham's sons. And if you go to the Old Testament, we'll look at that and see how that goes. We have the same dynamics going here. And finally, we have Thaddeus, who in Luke and Acts is called Judas. I always felt bad for St. Judas. Because <laughs> Thaddeus is not the same Judas as the one that we get to at the end. And I think it's where the sermon in this one lies. Then we have Simon the Zealot. That's what Canadian means. It means he's very zealous for Jesus. Then we end the list with Judas Iscariot. And Iscariot means that he's from a suburb of Jerusalem. So this whole section is important, and Mark puts it in here. He's not wasting papyrus, because when we get to chapter 6, it's really going to come into play. And the early church knew that this call for them to be apostles was very effective, because, hey, we're all here. If you think about it, it's great motivation for Christians as to what the message can do, and the fact that for these 12 men, we're now the largest religion in the world. That is enough effective ministry from 12 guys that were fishermen and of no real account, save for one. Judas Iscariot's the one from the nice town. And Mark doesn't ever let us forget that he's the one who betrays Jesus. I think that's why it's important to kind of keep that little bit of Calvinisty Jesus elected the 12. Because Judas never sneaks in. <clears throat> Judas isn't picked because Jesus has made some mistake. He misread him or something. Judas is picked for that same reason Jesus out on the sea was battling the kingdom of evil. Jesus knew that in the church there would always be struggles. There would be the church invisible, created of all believers, but there would also be the church visible, corrupted by bad ministers, corrupted by bad preachers, and there would always be in human leadership fallibility. It says something about the church and how Christ wanted to protect weak consciences that at the very initial founding in the initial 12, 
Jesus picks one who he knows at cost to himself will prove that the rest of the twelve are just men. There's nothing in these disciples that makes them any different from you or I than besides the fact Christ upon the mountain picked love. And it's also humbling, but at the same time comforting that he picks Judas. First off, it shows no one should boast on your position in the church or your outward form of religiosity. Judas is here given the ability to cast out demons, to preach the word, and he saw Jesus convey whatever this is to the end. He knew Christ. He saw Christ. He healed with the power of Christ. There's nothing in here to tell us Judas didn't do anything the rest of the disciples did. But at the same time, he's the bad egg, the rough one. It also just kind of goes into show what the cost of carrying the cross truly would be to Jesus. It's a difficult thing to befriend somebody anyways. It's a completely different thing to befriend somebody who you know will be untrue. To open up your inward heart and your family to someone who will stab you right in the back. And yet Christ saw in forming his church that that very risk must be taken because that would also give the church an outward focus. A church that is too afraid of being hurt, too afraid that it might accidentally pick a Judas, will never get anything done. A church that recognizes that Judas's will come up the rank one way or the other, realizes that also some of those Judases just might be a badass. It might be the person who is the faithful disciple. He just has the bad opinion. It's just something to think at as we go through this Gospel of Mark and think of how Jesus is interacting here with real people. He's battling the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of Satan, yes, in the big giant cosmic terms. But just as much as this is the interaction of flesh and blood people. Jesus is dealing with folks that might have woke up on the wrong side of the bed. But think of the eternal consequences of that. Jesus is the God of Christ come into the flesh, and it's even just in the regular fleshly circumstances that someone's eternal destiny could be decided. So thus Jesus had to create his disciples, to create his church, to create his people that would proclaim faithfully his message year after year, Sowing again and again so that the seed may take root.